take our Bible tonight. Make your way to Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're back in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've only got two chapters left. And um, tonight's is going to cover all of chapter 11. It's just 10 verses. Um, but at the end of it, it does kind of connect into chapter 12, which we'll, we'll kind of see the tie-in in our next message. Uh, but the title of the message is Stewarding Life Under the Sun. Stewarding Life Under the Sun. So let's begin reading in verse number 1. Solomon says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and dawn of life are vanity. There's a lot to unpack that we can see within this passage of Scripture, but one overall and undergirding theme of this is that of stewardship. Stewardship. So well, what does it mean to steward something? Stewardship is conducting or supervising, it's managing something that is entrusted to you, something that's been given into your care. Did you know that every single one of us are stewards? Every single one of us are stewards. Every person who lives in the world is a steward of their own life and all that they receive in this life. We are called to manage and conduct every aspect of our life with wisdom and faithfulness to the Lord. And we could categorize this into various things. We're called to steward our time. We're called to steward our energy, our health, our finances, our family, our responsibilities, our worship our witness, our service to Christ, and the list could go on and on, these different categories that we're called to steward in life. Because every day, we are stewarding life in one way or another. We're either stewarding life well, or maybe we're not stewarding life so well. It's going to be one of the other. That's how life is. Now, when we look at this passage, Solomon's going to speak much to that, but he also kind of brings out maybe some of the hindrances to people's stewardship. One of the great hindrances, I think, in our minds of stewarding life is, uh, is the uncertainties of the future and uncertainties of what might happen uh, in life with our stewardship. That's one of the things that comes up often in people's lives. Sometimes we wonder what God's doing, and sometimes we may wonder, what is the purpose for this? Or maybe we wonder, is being faithful really worth it? Does it make a difference? Does what I do make a difference? You think about whether stewardship matters or not. We may think about maybe changing our habits to better benefit our life. Do they really make a difference? Will following a budget help me financially and paying attention to what I spend and what I take in? Will eating right benefit my health? Is it worth it? 
Do my prayers really have any impact? Should I keep praying like I should pray? Will my sharing the gospel really lead to someone being saved? Does that make a difference? You know, the list can go on about our questions of uncertainty that may affect our stewardship of life. And one of the things that I've noticed in this passage, you'll notice that Solomon mentions a phrase four times. Four times in this passage he says, you do not know, four times. (laughs) You do not know, you do not know, you do not know. That's just part of life. But Solomon's mention of uncertainty is not a cause for being paralyzed in our stewardship, but rather it's a cause for being productive in our stewardship because we trust in a God who does know. We trust in a God who governs all that we know. And so through this passage, he brings our attention to that issue of stewardship, and I want to bring out a few things to you here tonight. Notice with me number one in our notes, or our first heading, is I want you to see that life is a call to stewardship. That's what we see in the first half of this chapter, the first few verses. Life is a call to stewardship. And I break this down by way of what Solomon's bringing out of the text firstly. I want you to see firstly, the first aspect of this, is that investing wisely is essential to stewardship. Investing wisely is essential to stewardship. Now, this first section might be a little puzzling, and you just read it first offhand, and you're just coming through it maybe quickly. You might wonder, what in the world is he talking about? So it requires a little bit of digging, a little bit of referencing here. But you notice verse 1, Solomon says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Well, I read that and had to fall. I was like, what in the world is he thinking about? What's he talking about, right? First thing that comes to my mind is sitting there ripping up pieces of bread and throwing it to the fish, right? Throwing it down on the water and uh, just kind of seeing what happens. Casting your bread on the water. What's he talking about? Well, there's, there's a statement that's a little bit obscure. Some commentators differ on the exact meaning, and I, I give you a few different interpretations of it. Some believe it plainly refers to generosity. Uh, for example, Proverbs 19:17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So there's a principle of being generous and, and, and knowing that God will, will uh, bring benefit from that. Some interpret it to mean the basic concept of sowing and reaping. For example, MacArthur comments here, says, Taking, take a calculated and wise step forward in life, like a farmer who, throw, who throws his seed on the wet and marshy ground and waits for it to grow. So there's that element of sowing and reaping in that way. And I think there is an aspect of sowing and reaping present, and I think it's going to be mentioned later in the illustration in the next few verses that he's going to show us, but it's not the sole purpose of that statement. Thirdly, here's the one that I think is most likely and and most would agree on, is that while each of these first two options can be applied from the text, and they are principles taught elsewhere in Scripture, the most likely interpretation is that of wisely investing, investing, so as to generate return. Now, that is connected to sowing and reaping. There's generosity that can flow into that as well. But Solomon, he spoke a lot about money and wealth throughout the book, hasn't he? He's shown us the danger of money being an idol. And that money and wealth, it doesn't give you ultimate satisfaction, does it? A lot of people are deceived by that. If they just have more money, that they'll find a lot satisfaction in life. Well, that's just not the case. But he also shows there is good in money and wealth, that uh, he says money is an answer to everything, meaning that money, it takes money to live. It takes money to take care of things. It's an answer in that, for, in that way. So we see the balance of both things throughout this book and the whole of the Bible. But Solomon, understand, he knew a lot about investing, both for the good of himself and of the people he governed. 
And what you'll find is that in Solomon's day, to cast bread upon the waters is to engage in commercial enterprise involving overseas trade. It's a, it's a, it's a means of investing, putting out what you have for the sake of gaining in return. Now we see a little bit of example in Solomon's own kingship here. In 1 Kings 9, 26 through 28, listen to this. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Israel Geber, which is near Eloth on the shores of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. In another text, a chapter later, 1 Kings 10, 22, he says, For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So you see this enterprise of Solomon on the sea. He's investing in order to gain. He's investing in this, this shipping enterprise in order to gain a worthwhile return. And so thus he says this, you will find it after many days. Now, ships on commercial voyages, they might be long delayed before any profit is resulted, but there was the confidence that there would be a result from this endeavor, from this kind of investment. So Solomon, what he's basically saying here in principle is that eventually good investments pay off. Eventually good investments pay off in whatever category that might entail. So Cast your bread upon the waters. Now, let me point out some things about this. This doesn't guarantee that everything a person invests is always going to bring back reward. It's not a guarantee that that will happen. There is always a measure of risk involved in any kind of investment. And we'll get into a little bit of that. But just for example of Solomon. Solomon sending his ships that he's had built overseas runs the risk of the ship sinking, running into trouble runs the risk of that which the ship is bringing being stolen by others. There's risk involved in that. You may think of, that in a, think of it in a more modern-day risk. You put money into a stock market or a mutual fund, and there's no guarantee that it's going to increase. It could fall. It could crash. So you see there's risk involved. But while there's risk involved in every investment in life, there's also an element of wisdom and faith that's involved here. Some people... Understand, they make unwise investments and they lose it just because it wasn't right, right? Some people make wise investments and still lose it because it just didn't turn out like they thought it would. But fundamentally, the point Solomon is gathering here is that wise investments generated return. Therefore, cast your bread on the waters. Now, this ties into verse 2. Verse 2 and verse 1 are connected. Let me show you. He says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Now, what's he mean by give a portion to seven or eight? Well, firstly, note, give a portion of what? Give a portion of what? The bread or the substance that he's talking about in verse 1. Give a portion, not all of it, but a portion of it, okay? But notice he says, give a portion to seven or to eight. Well, what's he mean by this? He means diversify your investment. Diversify where, where you're uh, putting that which is meaningful to you, that which is important. Have you all ever heard the saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket? There's wisdom in that, right? Why not put all your eggs in one basket? Because if that one basket 
drops and it all shatters, you don't have anything left. You don't want to risk everything in one bundle. And so Solomon says this, diversify what you invest and what you're inputting because of this reason. You do not know what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, you don't know what could happen. You don't know what kind of tragedy, what kind of disaster, what kind of turmoil could strike. So this kind of diversification, it's necessary to afford protection against unforeseen calamity in one or two of the enterprises. So in a sense, some of the risk involved in verse 1 is limited by the diversification of verse 2. So there's a connection to this. But here's what Solomon's getting at. Now, he brings this out further in the text, is that you don't gain if you don't invest wisely. He who aims at nothing hits it every time. That's a good principle for us to learn. If, and he's going to bring up the matter of fear and uncertainty, of not investing, of not doing things with your life that are meaningful for the, because you're afraid or because uh, you don't know what's going to happen. But you'll notice in this text, notice that in both of these verses, they begin with a command, cast and to give, cast and to give. Solomon wants his audience to see that stewardship, it requires action on our part. It inquires a, a proactiveness on our part. So I want to bring this into some more application for us because this reaches beyond just the realm of, say, finances or wealth. It reaches beyond this because we steward all of life. What should we invest in in our life? What should we invest in in our life? And I've given you a few. Invest in your health. Invest in your health. You know, we don't hear a lot of that from the pulpit, right? I mean, that's just kind of the, kind of the thing that we don't pay attention to sometimes. But how important really is your health? What does God tell us about our body? It's the temple of what? Temple of God. Temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, our body is, is what we live in. It's the vessel that we live in. Now, imagine being in your car and you drive it for years, but you never do anything to take care of it. You don't change the oil, you don't change the brakes, you don't check the tread on the tire. and It's just a vessel to get you to point A to point B. But guess what? As it tears down, tears down, and you don't take care of it, you're going to run into trouble. The same thing applies to our body. Many people do not steward their bodies well. And so we have to take that into care. We have to take care of it to the best of our ability. We got to try to eat well. We got to try to get a little exercise. Whatever God has given us in our realm of ability with that area, we ought to do it. Number two, this is just application points I'm bringing out for us. Invest in your marriage. I'm talking about important things that matter in life. Invest in your marriage. Spend time with your spouse. Talk to them. Don't just be a roommate living in the same building. Talk to them. Listen to them. Uh, Pay attention to their needs. See how you can serve them. That, that's one of the most important things to invest in, and it's one of the most neglected things in American culture. You know how I know that? Because the divorce rate is through the roof. If people invested in their marriages, both sides would do that. It would, it would really curb that, I believe. Number three, invest in your family. That applies to your spouse, but not also your children. Give yourself to benefiting them and what is most important and spending time with them and encouraging them. Invest in friendships. Fourthly, you and I need friends, don't we? Guess what? Friends need you. If you think that you don't need anybody, that's a lonely kind of life. But if you're going to have good friendships, you have to invest in them. You have to uh, communicate. You've got to plan time for friends. Make it count. Fifthly, 
Invest financially. Now, this largely ties into what Solomon's talking about, but invest financially. Every Christian ought to be a hard worker, not a lazy worker, a hard worker. So we ought to work hard. We ought to get out of debt and try to stay out of debt if possible. We ought to save money. We ought to plan for retirement. The Bible says that a, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Well, how can you do that if you don't steward your finances well? So you're supposed to do this. Stewarding your finances is part of it. Invest in your home. If you have a home, take good care of it. Don't let it go to ruin, and it will bless you, and it will also grow in value for your benefit. Invest your time. How many of us have an unlimited amount of time that we can just let go to waste? None of us do, right? We are on bar. We're on limited time, right? And so make your time count since it slips away so quickly. You can never get that back. And most importantly, number eight, I probably could have thrown some more in there, but I'm trying to give you some big point highlights. Most importantly, above all, invest spiritually into living for Christ and the kingdom of God. This is number one above everything, and I'll give you a little insight into this. It ties in to everything else I just said. It's not disconnected. There's a lot of people who think that the spiritual side is disconnected from the physical and material side. No, it's not. There is a more importance on the spiritual side, but understand that the spiritual impacts the physical. Always does. It impacts the material. It impacts the life you live in this world. Now, I want to point this out to you and by way of Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter number 25. Matthew 25, let's read this parable that he gives in verse 14 through verse 30. Because I think you'll see that stewarding your life for the glory of Christ, that this is the way of the Christian life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, down through verse number 30. Notice what he says, talking about the kingdom of God. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Notice that. He's entrusted them this. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over, very, over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have done what? Invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine 
with what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has been given, more, will, to everyone who has will more be given, and he who has, has will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into our outer darkness in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, as you read this parable, it kind of lays out two groups of people. You have the faithful steward of what God entrusted to him and the unfaithful steward who, what, who did not do well with what God entrusted to him. But you'll notice that the faithful stewards, they invested what was trusted to them, and the unfaithful stewards, they hid what was trusted to them. They just kind of held on to it. Why? The reason he did that, because he was afraid. Fear crippled him. Fear, uncertainty. Knowing who God was, he was fearful. And so what do you see with the result of this? One group heard the wonderful statement that we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. The other did not hear. He heard, you wicked and slothful servant. So from this text, what do you see? You see the importance of stewardship to Christ. You see how important it is to him. He has left us here to steward what he has entrusted to us as his people. And understand, he doesn't expect you to do what somebody else is doing. You notice that he gave to every man according to their ability. He understands he's made us all uniquely, all right? And so he's left us here to steward that which has been entrusted to his people. And this reaches firstly into the spiritual, but it also touches the material and the physical. We must understand that because all that we do in this world is connected to our spiritual life. Everything. Why is that? Because we live unto the Lord in all things that we do. As small as eating and drinking, we do it unto what? Unto the glory of God. Paul the Apostle said in Colossians 3, 23-24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And here's the great thing about understanding what we're doing for Christ, okay, in all that we do. All that we do for Christ is not what Solomon describes about the earthly things under the sun. How does Solomon describe the earthly things under the sun? Vanity. All that we do for Christ is the opposite of that. It's not vanity. It is meaningful. It is purposeful because it is eternal. It is unto him. It is unfading. You see, Paul said that in light of the resurrection of Christ and the defeat of death, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, knowing this, your labor is not in vain, what you do in Christ. So, while investments in this earthly life, they do have a measure of risk, in them, in regard to their reward, there's an absolute certainty of reward in all that you do unto Christ. There's a certainty. So we heed the principle that Solomon gives here to invest wisely, both in this earthly life, but also in regard to eternal life. Those are two principles. But letter B, this brings us to the second aspect here, is that wisdom leads to action despite uncertainty. Wisdom leads to action despite uncertainty. Now, in the next few verses, 
Solomon brings out the reality of uncertainty that often is what hinders people from investing and stewarding their life the way they should. You'll notice in verse 3 through 4, he's going to give some natural observations to communicate this point. Verse 3, he says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I mean, that's kind of a pretty bland statement, isn't it? I mean, that's like saying, you know, the grass is green and the sky is blue. It just is what it is, right? But he's giving an illustration here to show that everything happens in this world and it's out of your control. You're not going to be able to do anything about it. The clouds are going to be full of rain. They're going to rain. You're not going to change that. A tree's going to fall in the woods, whether it goes to the north or the south, really out of your control. Trees are falling right now as I speak. I don't have any control over that. I don't even know what direction they're falling. But that's just how life is. It's going to, things are going to happen. We can't control every detail or everything that happens in life. The two points involved here, one commentator says, seem to be mankind cannot control the difficulties of life, even when he anticipates them, firstly, and secondly, because often they are totally unexpected events. And so with this scenery of natural things beyond our control, Solomon says in verse 4, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What's he pointing out here? In this example, he's showing us a farmer watching for the weather, waiting for perfect conditions before he finally gets to work, before he finally does what he should be doing. Now, certainly, there are certain better conditions for farmers to work in, but the picture here is someone who does nothing because of the uncertainty of something. He's just sitting around. He's looking for a reason to procrastinate, right? Now, you cannot let the uncertainty of life in this world paralyze you from investing your life as you should be investing it. Because uncertainty is a part of life itself. Nothing's going to change that. Solomon says, you do not know, four times in this passage, you do not know. But knowing doesn't change the trajectory of life or our responsibility of stewarding it wisely. Now, notice Solomon gives another example of his point here. In verse 5, he says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, there's a couple translation differences here that I'll point out. For example, the LSB renders this as, just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. Compared to the King James, as thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Now, the Hebrew word for spirit and wind, they go together and sometimes translated from the same word. But the translations, I think they may vary, but the, the point, I think, comes through pretty clearly about the uncertainty of things. All right, whether you're referencing the wind or whether you're referencing the spirit of a person in the womb, I think you can see the connection of the spirit in the womb by the, what the, the, the bones growing and how life comes to be. And that's what I want to focus on here. You think about the miracle it is that new life forms in the womb of a woman who conceives. New life has begun in the womb of a, of a woman that was non-existent before. Think about that non-existent before, the intricate design and process of life developing in the womb is really beyond what we can know, beyond what we can fathom. You notice Solomon says, you do not know 
how the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now, you think about today's technology. Solomon's day, they didn't have ultrasound. They didn't have a lot of the things that we have today, right? Nowadays, we can hear the baby's heart beating very early on. We can see images of that baby moving around. We can see the development of certain bones and body parts and, and how everything comes to be with the human development. But think about this in reference to this text and this translation. But how life, the spirit, how life comes to the body at conception is beyond what we can know. How that at that moment there's a new being, not just body, but also spirit. Because we are more than just body, aren't we? We are also spirit. Our body's going to die, but our spirit is the real us, the part that lives forever, right? The body dies and goes back to the earth, but the spirit, life in the body, the breath of life that God gave to mankind, science doesn't know how that works. Science has no clue. We don't have a clue either, but we do know who set it in motion and who put it together this way. God did. God did. It's, it's, it's a marvelous mystery to me how God designed mankind to procreate and that new life comes forth from life. Life comes from life. This is God's sovereign design and work for humanity in the world. And I think this is a great reference to read together. It's in Psalm 139 from, from David. David writes about himself, but this is a wonderful passage about life in the womb. You look at verse 13 through verse 16 for a moment. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now if that doesn't show us the sovereignty of God over a person's life, I don't know what does. He formed us. How we developed? That's of God. That's of God. It was out of our control, right? The days that we have on this world, He's already set them before we ever came to them. That's out of our control. That is in God's hands only. And so this this reminds us, okay, in in light of this truth, Solomon says, in light of this in Ecclesiastes, all right, recognize this, in light of this truth, he says, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know everything of God's work. He's already brought that to our attention, hasn't he? Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so as he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can't figure it all out. We do not know and cannot figure out all the intricate details of God's works in this world. We do not know what will happen or why it will happen. Much of this life is a mystery as we may experience in our life, isn't it? Why did God take something I wanted? Think about it in a personal way. Why did God take something I wanted? Why did He give me something I didn't ask for? Why do my plans sometimes not work out? You don't know, do you? Mysterious. Then there's some other mysterious aspects that we just rejoice in, even though we're not worthy of them. Why was Jesus willing to suffer God's wrath to atone for my sin? Why? 
Well, we read the scriptures, love and grace and all of that, but when you think about how unworthy we are, we can't help but wonder, who am I? That he would do such a thing for me, right? Why was I chosen to hear and believe the gospel? When there are multitudes in this world that don't even have the scriptures in their own language. Why am I blessed in certain ways while others are not? That's not a point of pride or boasting. It is a point of humility and adoration of God. You see, all of this mystery and uncertainty of things brings us to the necessity of living by faith and doing what God has called us to do with our life, which is to steward it and live it wisely, to invest it well. Now, this drives home the application to verse 6, where Solomon says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words... Don't let everything he's talked about, don't let the fear and the uncertainty of what might happen keep you from investing your life as you should be doing. Get to work is what he's saying. Get busy. Don't let life slip by. Get busy. You see, see, many fail to invest their lives because of fear and uncertainty. They allow it to paralyze them. Some will never buy a car because of the possibility of wrecking it. Some may never buy a house because the market just isn't perfect. Some never save because they're afraid the banks are going to crash. Some never give generously because they don't know how someone's going to use that generosity. Some never invest in relationships because they're afraid of getting hurt. You see what I'm saying here? Solomon is pointedly saying, quit with the procrastination of investing your life. Why? Because you're never going to reap where you don't sow. You're never going to reap where you don't sow. You cannot expect profit without labor. You cannot expect a harvest without sowing the seed. You can't expect something from doing nothing. And so don't let, don't, don't let the uncertainties of life keep you from doing, living your life as you should, especially in the spiritual realm of things. So the reward, understand, it's worth the risk of investing our lives wisely for God's glory. But notice within number two, and I'll be shorter on this point. The bulk of it was at the beginning. I know you're saying amen because we're getting getting overboard here life gives us cause for stewardship not only see it life is a call to stewardship because solomon says to cast your bread give sow. but life itself gives us cause for stewardship and here's what i want to point out to you two things growing older gives us perspective on stewardship doesn't it growing older gives us perspective on stewardship why should you steward your life wisely Eventually, you understand your life's going to come to an end, and that opportunity is going to be long gone. And every day that we do get to live, we get older. Time goes by so quickly. We take it for granted. We really do. I feel like yesterday I should have been 23. I'm about to turn 20, 23, about to turn 33. It's like, where'd 10 years go? You know, I'm sure it's going to be the same way as if, Lord willing, if I make it another 10 and another 10. But here's the reality. The brevity of life should cause us to see the importance of stewardship, to rejoice in life and to use it well. In verse 7, notice what he says. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Verse 8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Notice this light is indicative of life, life under the sun. Every day that you get to see the sun rise, you've been blessed beyond measure. Because there was about 150,000 people in the world that didn't get to see the new day. 
or more. It may be more now. If you don't wake up and see the light, guess what? Most likely you've passed from this world. Every day you wake up to see the sunrise, you ought to praise God. He's given it to you. Psalm 118, 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So when Solomon says light is sweet, you know what he's saying? It's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. Why is it good to be alive? Well, the only alternative is to be dead. <laughs> so I'd say that's a good thing. Good thing to be alive. Even greater than that is the fact that every day you live, you experience the mercies of God in a way that you don't even recognize. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, Jeremiah said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So with every day you live, you're blessed by His mercies. You see the sunlight. You're alive and breathing. You grow older. I know there's many challenges to getting older because of the curse of sin. The older we get, our bodies lose their strength and vigor. We ache in places we didn't once ache before. Doctor visits might become more frequent. But despite all the challenges of growing older, elderly age is still the gift of God and should be viewed as such. You notice what he says here? So if a person lives many years, what does he say? Let him gripe and complain in all of them. No, he says, let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice in them all. See, we're to enjoy all of our days. All of life is meant to be enjoyed by God's design. But the longer we live and the more real death's door becomes to us, we see how brief life is. And what does the reality of death prompt us to recognize? Life is too short not to be enjoyed, regardless of how long a person may live. Life is too short not to use it well, to steward it wisely, to invest it wisely. Solomon also issues a call to remember something in his old age. He says, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. What does he mean by the days of darkness? It could refer to the realities of old age, or death itself, or both. Whichever it is, we must remember that life under the sun, it's full of dark days. We experience days of great loss, great pain, great sorrow, great suffering, affliction, trials, heartache. And the older you live, the more of those you're going to experience. And you'll see and agree with Solomon about all the things he said about life under the sun. All that comes is vanity. All is vanity in light of the inescapable cycle of human existence. But nevertheless, we still rejoice in life until we pass and recognize our need to steward it well. Letter B. God's judgment gives perspective on stewardship. God's judgment gives perspective on stewardship. Now, he moves from speaking to the elderly to speaking to the youth because both are in great need of these truths. He says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Notice that both the elderly and the youth are to rejoice in their life. Rejoice. Now when Solomon says to the youth, Walk in your ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, he is not saying, Go sow your wild oats. He's not condoning a life of sin. And wild, reckless living. That is often the 
inclination of the youth is to go down the way of sin, to rebel, to resist the authority of the Word of God into the older generation. But that's not what Solomon's talking about. Scripture would never condone such a thing. One of the great problems in our own culture today is that the youth pay little regard to the wisdom of the Bible and to the wisdom of the older generation. I know that's kind of natural to a young person, but we often need to learn this younger. Our culture is very youth-centered in a lot of ways. Older people do everything they can to look and stay young, don't they? All kinds of stuff today, and it's kind of silly in my mind. Some of the things, the extent people go to. But on the other hand of that, you understand that youth are often, youth are often the focus point of just letting them do whatever they want to do without any instruction anymore. And so they resist learning from the others who have gone before them and do so only to their own heart. And so here's what Solomon's wanting them to get at. Solomon simply wants youth to recognize enjoyment in life just as the elderly should recognize enjoyment in life. But with all of this in mind, that whatever you're doing in your youth or in your elderly age, there's a sharp warning here for us in what we do in life. He says, know that for all these things God will bring you into That is one of the repeated truths of this book and one he's going to close the book out with is the judgment of God. Because every single one of us will stand before the holy throne of God to give an account of our life. Now the good thing for us in Christ is that we are cleansed and washed in the blood. But that is not, that is not reason or excuse to live any way you want. That affects fellowship. It affects reward. It affects a different category for for the people of God. For those who are not in Christ, they heap wrath upon wrath for the day of judgment. But here's the reality with this. Awareness of divine judgment turns the pursuit of joy away from crossing over into sins. And so Solomon next says in verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remove vexation and vanity from your life, young person especially that which comes from youthful sins. Get rid of the bad things that trouble you, that will tempt you. And that's not even exclusively to sin in its own nature. Take care of yourself all over, your whole being. Take care of yourself. Solomon, I mean, Paul said to Timothy, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So remembering God is our judge stirs us to steward life as we should as well. So stewarding life, there's a lot more that could go into this. But it has great application for us right now. We need to invest in our life and invest our life wisely. We need to rejoice in the whole of our life, youth and old age. Remember the vanity of life. And ultimately remember that there's a judge we're accountable to. There's a judge we're accountable to. And we need to steward a life wisely.